Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. First Samuel chapter 6 is where we left off last week, and we'll pick up and keep rolling. Uh, for context on First Samuel chapter 6, remember, the Israelites did not consult God, and they decided to make war on the Philistines. It was disastrous. They lost thousands of people, and they lost the Ark of the Covenant. So where we pick up our story tonight, our narrative, is that the Ark of the Covenant is on its own with no Israelites to help it or carry it or anything else. Um, and it was in the Ark, uh, or the verse 1, now the Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines for seven months. As we saw in the last chapter, for those seven months, everywhere the Ark went, tumors went to follow, and with the tumors came uh, rats of, of some sort. So plague followed wherever they brought the Ark because the Ark was not with the Israelites. Um, so we pick up there, and they took, this is the weird part, Philistines took seven months to figure this out. They didn't want to give up the ark. The ark was their prize, a nice little golden box. So anyways, so, the, so verse 2, And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, if you send away the ark of God, the, the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. Um, the perception of victory then has disappeared in seven months. This is no longer a sign of victory. It's a, a sign of tumors. And some historians even believe it was like tumors on the backside, right? The worst kind of tumors. Um, so that you cannot have rest when you have these tumors. So in chapter 5, God brought that plague. Um, and remember, they put him in front of Dagon as an offering to Dagon. And then God fixed that. <laughs> like they came up the next morning and Dagon's statue is bowing before the ark. So they prop him up, probably strapped him down with bungee cords and everything else. But the next morning, the statue is not only bowing down, his head and arms are neatly placed on the threshold of the temple, like not an accidental falling. So this is their reaction to that. Now that they had tumors and plague, how do we get rid of it? Their prize becomes their burden. And this is the Philistines being an image of the world. As idolaters, they want God to leave them alone. <laughs> they want to show that they have dominance over God, but when they, it's clear they don't, they just want to be left alone. Like, leave us to our idolatry and stop bugging us. The seven months period there, again, notice the number seven. It's this time of kind of divine intervention. It's a number of the divine, right? But they've had it after that period. They've been struggling with God, and now they just want God out of their life. Notice in verse one that they actually use Yahweh. So it's not just, you know, the God of the Israelites. It's how, how the Ark of Yahweh and they're using that proper name. So they're not ignorant of the, the Israelite religion. They're neighbors. They know, they know what, what Judaism is. Verse 2, it says the priests and the diviners. So these are a pagan culture. They have multiple gods, multiple cultures. Diviners are people that 
are pretending they're hearing from the spirit world in order to give directions in the human world. Uh, so essentially, we've got the blind leading the blind. These are pagan people trying to guess at what would appease Yahweh. Not having the law, not knowing anything about it, they take some good guesses. Um, in chapters, in verse 7, 8, and 11, it's the Ark of Israel. And then now it's the Ark of Jehovah, and they have to return it to him. So it's interesting how this happens. They talk about a trespass offering. That goes back to Leviticus. They know enough about Judaism to know that this, they have to make some sort of offering or a trespass offering. So it's interesting to see how a pagan culture just tries to figure this out by making things up. Um, and the idea here is that they appease a god, which is not uncommon. So we've trespassed. They recognize their trespass, so they make a trespass offering. It's interesting how God has brought an entire nation to this point without any help from Israel. Like, he doesn't need Israel to advance his glory and his power and his dominion. Verse 4, then they said, what is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors. Okay, just stop for a second and think about what does a golden tumor look like? Like, these had to be distinctive growths that they had on their body that would be recognizable when cast into gold. And that's disgusting. I mean, it's disgusting as an image. Like, they would say, oh, yeah, that's that thing that grew on me. So whatever it is, it had a distinctive look to it to where they could mold it and carve it and shape it. So five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on all your lords. Ouch. Therefore, you shall make images of your tumors and images and of your rats that ravage the land, and you shall give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you, from your gods and from your land. So they're making golden versions of the plague. They know that it's a supernatural affliction, and they're reacting to it with spiritual supernatural solutions. This is interesting. These are not people that bow and service Yahweh, but they understand the power of Yahweh. Like, this is actually almost better than when you deal with people that just don't even recognize God or don't talk about him or don't respond to him. But they, as the Philistines, now understand the source of power. Um, but they, they want to give trespass, but notice that they're not repenting. You would think logically, if you know that your God needs to bow to these other gods, wouldn't you just go follow the more powerful God? But the more powerful God has expectations on their lives that they don't want to give up. They just want to get rid of this God. Uh, so the five golden rats in verse 18 uh, shows that we're going to see that they go way more than five. Like they do rats for every one of their cities, but we'll see that in verse 18. Um, but the amount of gold here is likely a king's ransom. Like think about well, how big would a golden tumor be? How big would a golden rat be? Are these little baby rats or would they be full-size golden casts of a rat? Either way, you're giving back the ark, which is a kingly prize, and you're giving a bunch of solid gold over. So instead of winning the war and taking the spoils, they won the war and now they have to give spoils. So God's flipped everything on the Philistines. But that's pagan thinking. If you want to please a God, give them gold. It's not Judaism. Like, we don't give offerings of gold to God because God doesn't need our gold. What a silly thing. But that's how pagans think. They believe it, so they act on it. Perhaps, it says in verse 5, the word perhaps there, Perhaps he will lighten his hand from you. They don't know. The priests and diviners have no clue. They're just taking a stab in the dark at what's going to make God happy. If you don't read the word of God and you don't have access to the word of God, you're just guessing through life. And that's what they're doing. We got something bad happening. Let's just take a pot shot at this. 
It says all of you. Perhaps they traded the ark to all five cities. Last chapter, they only went to two. But after seven months, apparently they've brought the ark to all five cities to see if the ark would be happy. That's kind of pagan thinking. It was not happy in any of those places. It says give glory to the God of Israel. And in this act, they actually do what Israel didn't. Like we have to keep the contrast going. You had the contrast between Samuel and the two corrupt priests. But you also get the contrast between Israel and the Philistines. In giving glory to the God of Israel, the Philistines are doing what Israel didn't do. Like, do you see what Samuel is doing there with that contrast? And it says, from your God. So they fully understand that Yahweh is superior. And this is a kind of form of honoring that without actually following that God. Verse 6. Why then do you harden your hearts like the, as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? When did mighty things, when he did mighty things among them, did they not let the people go that they might depart? So this, these are cool verses. Think of the global impact the events of Exodus actually had. Because here we are hundreds of years later, the world population would have only been about 27 million at this time. We're not talking about a massive number of humans on the earth. But when that stuff happened in Egypt, it went around to all the other nations around. Yahweh gained a reputation not because of the Israelites, but despite them. And so at this point, when the Philistines are referencing the events of Exodus and Egypt, it really shows us that there was a global conversation about Yahweh happening. And how Paul, and the, the, the logic of verse 6 is, let's not be idiots like the Egyptians. They were stupid, and it went way beyond tumors. Let's, get, let's honor this God before we get rivers of blood. And so as they started to see the supernatural, the Philistines actually are smarter than the Egyptians because they don't fall into that trap. So that's what they're thinking. Verse 7, now therefore make a new cart. Carts are valuable. They take wood in an area without a lot of wood. So make a new cart. Take two milk cows, which have never been yoked, and hitch the cows to a cart and take the calves home away from them. Then take the ark of the Lord, set it on the cart, and put the articles of gold which you are returning to him as a trespass offering in a chest by its side. So there's two boxes in the cart. Then send it away, let it go, and watch. If it goes up the road to its own territory, to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. Then we know it's God. But if it doesn't, then we know that it's not his hand that struck us, but it happened by chance. All right, this is totally logical. The Philistines have seen something that appears to be supernatural, but they're not sure about it. So they're going to test and see if this is actually Yahweh or not Yahweh. Before you go giving away heaps of gold, that's maybe something that's kind of logical. So they're going to make a test. Samuel wasn't sure of God's voice back in chapter three, 5, and the Philistines aren't sure that this is God's voice here in this chapter. You see the kind of balance there? So in the same way, they're going to both kind of test and see it is. Samuel's response was, here I am. The Philistines' response is, let's follow the cart like sneaky people. And let's just chase this thing down the road and see if it works. So both the righteous and the unrighteous are looking for confirmation from God. And they're testing that what they think might be God speaking to them, they're looking for secondary confirmation. Remember we talked about hearing God's voice back in chapter 5? This is still kind of that same thing where you see these images of how to check to see if that's actually God talking to us. So the confirmation they're looking for is a pattern or an intervention from God to, to follow through on what they're thinking in their head, right? This is good for us as Christians. Like, we should be doing this. The new cart is valuable. That's an honor to Yahweh. They're trying to honor this God to appease him. 
because that's how pagans think. The cows being never yoked, you could say, Grant, that makes them humorless cows. Eh? You like that? Okay. Um, but they're setting up a situation that would require intervention. Here's the deal. For those of you that don't know cows, cows that are not yoked would resist a yoke. The first time you put a yoke on an animal, they're going to fight it. They're going to fight it tooth and nail. You have to break an animal to get them to put a yoke on. So they've never been yoked animals. So it would be supernatural for them to not resist the yoke. Then the second thing they're doing here is that these are cows. You don't put cows under a yoke. You put bulls under a yoke. So that makes sense, Isaac? You, you, you get milk from the cows. You work the men like oxen, right? So they're putting the wrong gender animal under the yoke. Third thing that's here, these are cows with calves. There's a mama cow taking care of her baby calf. We're going to yoke her. We're going to point her in a direction that's the opposite direction from her children. How will this go? In the natural world, those cows will fight the yoke. They will turn around, and they'll go straight to their calves that are still making noise. So what they're doing here is establishing if this is chance or not. And they're establishing a situation that, by all rules of the universe, is going to go one direction. So if it doesn't go that direction, they know that that's God. right? And I think this is like, we've used this. Steph and I put an offer in on a house last year. And we put an offer in, like, what, 20 grand over the asking price? And she's like, well, if we don't get this one, well, what are we going to do? And I'm like, if we don't get this one, we got confirmation. Like, it would, be, it would actually be a miracle for us to not get this house. And the other bid came in, like, a 1,000 more than us. And we're like, okay, like we're done for the season. Like we know what God's trying to say here. So I don't think God dis. That seems really petty. And like Sean, that's kind of like putting God to the test. I think there's a difference between testing God for our own benefit and getting confirmation that we're moving in the direction God wants us to move. And that there's there's subtlety there, and there's discretion there, and there's common sense and reason that God expects us to use. So chance, huh, here's a thought on chance. I know I'm, I'm going to get a little off here tonight. The Philistines are using chance, but let's think about chance philosophically. People think chance is just coincidence, but it's not. Chance is actually a delusion. It's a guess. You don't have a chance at flipping a coin at heads. That's, a, that's an illusion. It's a predictive word that we use in mathematics that can be completely dissolved by simply flipping the coin. So once the coin lands heads or tails, there's no longer chance anymore. It disappears. It's like when you turn on a light, darkness goes away. There are some things that are negotiable and up for predictive chance, but once something happens, the chance doesn't, it doesn't exist. It's a falsehood. It's like darkness. So randomizing cards, for instance, I might have a percentage chance of pulling two aces, but once I actually flip my cards, there's no longer a percentage chance. It goes away. It just poof. So part of this sort of situation is to get confirmation because you don't want to live in a world where everything's a guess and a chance. You want to live in a world where there's confirmation. And the Philistines are showing more wisdom around that than the Israelites are. It's a weird thing that we see in ancient history where people actually show their enemies as having greater wisdom than them. Not only that, but the ark doesn't seem to fry them. It just gives them tumors. So that's a whole other thing. So chance will never explain an outcome. It only predicts a possibility. That's all it's capable of doing. So lacking a pattern, um, we see that there's kind of a show of intelligence that happens when there's an actual action. So the plagues, they could be by chance. 
but they're not. They have plagues. And it is actually, the truth is, God's actually bringing those to those people. That's the claim of the Bible. Um, all right. I did get really geeked out on this. I think this is a key philosophical principle that we as Christians miss, right? So it's one thing to just look at the world as everything happens by chance. But then you look at things like, in the last year, there's been 38,000 earthquakes on this planet. That could just be chance, right? So there's also been 20 extreme weather events in one year, including a season this last hurricane season. We had seven hurricanes in the Atlantic Ocean at the same time. That could just be chance. Like, we could just write that, well, that's just chance. There's also a plague that went around this planet. I don't know if you guys knew about it. There's been 800,000 people worldwide that have died of COVID. Regardless of where you're at on COVID, people have died of it, right? But that could just be chance. That has nothing to do with Yahweh and God, right? And you start stacking these things up. This is from the University of Kentucky. In addition, the year in review. Plant shutdowns, restaurants, school closings, supply chain distributions, panic buying, labor uncertainties, continued trade disputes, were just a few of the items that led to a wild ride in our economy with prices on most farm commodities falling 10 to 25% or more during the second quarter of 2020, University of Kentucky. Don't worry, America. It's all just happening by chance. Chance is an illusion for people that don't want to believe in a god. For those that believe in a god, we have a slightly different lens on some of these things. Maybe, just maybe, Yahweh's trying to wake up his people. And again, like I can't wait for our talk afterwards because I know people are at different spots on this topic. But there's one of those things that it's not the evidence that matters to the ungodly because the evidence actually points towards Yahweh. So if you ignore the evidence, then it really comes down to a willingness to actually see what's happening and recognize it. So we all could get tumors on our butts. And we could all just chalk that up to chance. Must have been Casey just brought something in and, you know, we all just got tumors on our butts. Or at some level, even the pagan people say, maybe this is Yahweh. Let's do this thing with the cows and see if this is just a coincidence or it's an evaporation of an idea of chance because if these cows go the right direction, this is not chance anymore. It evaporates. Poof. Likewise, if you're looking for significance in everything, that's, an, that's erring on the other side as human beings. Where like, oh my goodness, this drink hit me in just the right spot. It must have been God making the flavor come alive for me. Like, I've met Christians like that too, where it's like every little thing in the universe is God's intervention in their life. And I think God thinks that's funny. <laughs> but I don't think, I mean, I'd rather lean on that side than never seeing God's intervention in the world. Right? So there's a balance there. If God is causal and he intervenes in human history, then likely those that follow him will recognize his actions and those that don't follow him don't see a thing. It's all just chance. Right? Anyways, I know I went off on the word chance. We'll get back to our chapter, verse 10. But I hope that was a blessing. Like, just think about that idea of, oh, it's all just chance. Nonsense. Wake up. Open your eyes. Verse 10. Then the men did so. And so they take the wisdom of their sages. They took two milk cows and hitched them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they set the ark of the Lord on the cart and the chest with the gold rats and the images of their tumors. Verse 12, then the cows headed straight for the road to Beth Shemeth. They don't resist the oak, they head straight for the road. And they went along the highway. 
bellowing as they went, and did not turn aside to the right hand or the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them to the border of Beth Shemesh. So here's this like entourage of Philistines. Lords don't travel alone, they travel with their posse. So here's this whole little group of Philistines following a cart with two cows pulling two golden boxes. This is a hilarious scene. It would be great movie making, right? And they're just following it going, how far will these cows go? And they set the ark. So this is interesting. In Exodus 25 and Numbers 4, there's very specific instructions on how to handle the ark. You're supposed to put poles through it. The priests don't touch it. There's all these rules. These guys just pick it up and throw it in the ark. No problem whatsoever. It's not a magic box. And God forgives the Philistines for mishandling because he forgives ignorance. He doesn't forgive defiance, but he does forgive ignorance. Notice the Philistines are able to pick it up and put it on the cart. Nobody dies. Nobody gets fried or anything like that. So God shows mercy with them. And in fact, they're honoring him in this behavior. The best these little pagan Philistines can do, they're actually honoring the God of Yahweh. And I just, I don't know, it's precious how God treats the unbelievers Better than the people who know better, right? This is like as a parent, when your kid does something wrong, if you had already talked to them about don't do this and then they do it, that's a whole different conversation than them just doing something dumb, right? And the dumb they're going to learn on their own. We don't stick scissors into outlets, right? Verse 12 says the cows headed straight for the road. Uh, no grazing. Have you ever met a cow? These are meandering animals. They don't like work with a mission. That's not cow personality. So the way they put that in there and the way they use the Hebrew to describe it, the cows headed means they had intention and they headed straight for where they should go. No doubt, this isn't chance anymore. These are supernatural cows. These are Jesus cows, right? They're, and it says they're lowing as they went. So again, for those of you not familiar with cows, cows have four words. It's a very simple vocabulary. Cows gaw, which is the Hebrew word there for the, for the, the lowing. But they also, um, they coo, that's a gentle sound. They moo, which is the sound we use with kids' songs. And then they snort and they bellow. So the lowing word that gets used here for, like this is true of for thousands of years. There's only a few ways cows converse. But the lowing here implies that they were actually excited about what they were doing. Right? It's that idea that they're going, hur, 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 let's go. And they're making that noise and they're lowing. And lowing gets really loud. It's like they're singing praises almost. Like the image of these cows making that noise with that behavior, going in that motion, with that kind of intention, with their calves in the barn locked up behind them. When calves have their moms taken away, they make noise too. And they don't describe the noise of the calves, but I can guarantee you those calves were, were calling out for their moms. So for these two moms to do that instead of that, there's no chance involved anymore. And that's what the Philistines were looking for. So they have to, this is, I don't know. <laughs> Next time you see a cow, look into their eyes. Look, look deep into their eyes and think, that cow has been the same animal for 5,000 years. They just do their thing. They eat their grass. They poop and they make babies and we eat them and we get milk from them and they haven't changed. And I like that God uses cows because we still can go meet a cow if we want to. And we can realize how absolutely abnormal and out of the ordinary this behavior is, right? You try to get a cow to go in a straight line anywhere and it doesn't work. 
We, we have bowl matches because bowls attack, like this, anyways. We get an image then of both nations and it's almost satire, right? We get Hophni and Phineas as, as expected to show this kind of honor to the ark. They use it like a toy in the last chapters, right? Israel then mourns the loss of the ark. Eli dies of, a, you know, basically falls over and snaps his neck. So that's the state of Israel for seven months is we're, oh, woe is me, and we're being destroyed. But the state of the Philistines is they're learning how to respect God for these seven months. This is an interesting period of time in history. So the priests first try to cover up what happens. Then they try to um, figure out what's going on with this public health crisis they're having. Um, and finally, they're just like, let's get rid of this ark, and they show it honor, and they do their best to show it honor, and God actually respects that. And so then we get the word now. So that's the setup. Verse 13, now the people of Beth Shemeth were weeping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. We've seen lifting of the eyes when people lifted their eyes to look at the bronze serpent, but it's usually a thing where people lift their eyes to get their eyes off the earth and put it onto godly things. So we see that same phrase being used here, and they see the ark and they rejoice in it. To rejoice is to put on joy that you don't have. It's not a bad thing to be down in the dumps. But to choose to put on joy even when you feel like crap, that's a blessing. And when they see this ark, they choose to put on joy. Because they didn't get that ark back. God did it for them. So they lift their eyes. They shift their eyes in their vision. Bronze snakes in Numbers 21. They rejoice to see it. In the Hebrew, that's samach which means to change into gladness or to make yourself merry. It's an action of intention. You don't just rejoice because you feel good. You rejoice because you choose to rejoice. And when we see God, we see God's word, we see his mercy, we see his glory. That's what the ark represented to them. They choose to rejoice when they see that symbol of God. Verse 14, then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. I should say, by the way, this is about 10 miles of the little Philistine people following this cart. It would have been a 10-mile trip from the Philistine, the nearest Philistine city. I'm assuming it's closest to Beth Shemeth. If it's, otherwise, it could be up to a 20-mile hike following these cows. So 10 miles of hiking for a cow, they're out of shape. They're like a dwarf. That's a huge journey for a cow. They're probably really, really tired, um, and they're wore out, but they kept going with that lowing, and uh, they moved forward. So then the cart came into the field of Joshua. Oh, that, wait a sec. That could just be chance. It's just chance that the cows pull up to a rock in the, the field that Joshua used to own, right? Or maybe it's not chance at all. Of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. This is kind of cool. Um, the wood and the cows are very valuable and costly and expensive. So they take those things and they do it. Um, so like the Philistines, God forgives their ignorance of the law because they're doing some things they shouldn't do here. Uh, and they're breaking a few rules, but the Israelites in their joy are moving forward with honoring God, and God honors that. Um, again, it's not about the rules. It is about the heart. The few ways they broke the rules, the Israelites broke the rules. You shouldn't be sacrificing female cows. God didn't ask for that, Leviticus 1.3. Uh, it's not at the tabernacle, Deuteronomy 12.5. So by sacrificing these cows here, they're doing it in a spot where God hasn't spoken. And that's against the rules of Leviticus. Um, but again, it's about the heart. 
So the burnt offering, if you remember from Leviticus, there's five kinds of offerings, six if you count, depending on how you count them. Um, but the burnt offering was an offering of repentance. We have sinned, and we're just going to give this whole offering to God. It's the, one of the only offerings where you don't keep any for yourself. So when they burnt it, they burned the whole thing up to God, and it goes up to God as smoke. Verse 15. The, the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was in it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings in addition to the two cows and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, because they're watching from behind some bushes and they're, you know, or stones or whatever, they're looking with their little telescopes, they see all this happening, then they return to Ekron the same day. We're, we're rid of it, we're just going to go away. So they see the Israelites starting to celebrate, words going around, crowds start to show up, this, you know, send runners, the ark is back, the buzz goes around Israel. These Levites are nameless. Notice in the histories we often get names, but now and then we get these characters without names. So these Levites of Beth Shemesh start to do this. Shemesh, Shemesh is a priestly city, Joshua 21, 16. So there would have been Levites there. The cows went straight to the nearest priestly city where there would be Levites that could care for them. Um, Likely, how do I phrase this? Likely the diplomatic ties that just got founded here brought some level of peace with the Philistines. But the Philistines don't go away. A generation coming up, David's still got to deal with the Philistines. But at least for a season, this backs the Philistines off. So as they go back to their cities, we get an implication that there's some peace here. And they don't, now they know that this wasn't chance, that the God of the Israelites is real and, 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 and whatnot. So nope, it's not an accident. Yahweh's kind of running the show. And as long as those elders are in Philistine, there's some peace here. But we're going to see soon as those elders turn over that there's going to be younger Philistines that want revenge. And, they're gonna, and this narrative will keep going. But we have an accounting. The Hebrews like to account for things and make a recording. So in verse 17, we get this record of what their loot was. This reads like an ancient script of what got taken after a battle. So it actually is structured in such a way that this is their loot from a battle that they just took. Here's their loot. Verse 17, there are, gold, there are the golden tumors, which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashtod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden rats according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel on which they set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemeth. So frankly, carving a, a mold for something like a golden tumor seems pretty gross to me and elaborate, but this is again the pagan thinking and doing it, and they make these lump-like things that the, the Jews recognize because there's no interaction between the Philistines and the Jews here. So they just pull it out, and they recognize that's the tumor. How would they know what that tumor looks like? And that's one of my questions for heaven. I'm going to put that on my list. How did the Jewish people know that this lump of gold thing was a tumor? And what would that look like to be that distinctive? But that's a side thing. Maybe the Israelites had little spies in Israel, and they're laughing at all the Philistines getting tumors and not being able to sit down or whatnot, however that worked out. You notice here that there's far more rats than the five rats. Their elders said to give five golden rats. 
But here it says there's a rat for every city. So that little cart would have been full of golden rats. Here you can have your ark bat. It just brought us plague, and we don't want it. So the stone that remains is what we call a historical marker. It's an indicator in an ancient text of something the writer is inviting the reader to go verify for themselves. So when you see things like that stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua and Beth Shemesh, that's an indicator that the person is trying to write history, not myth. Because they're giving you an actual marker to go check. And a lot of people will say, well, the Old Testament is just myth and legend. It's not written like myth and legend. There's, it has these kinds of indicators where we know the writer is not attempting to write myth. And we know that myth doesn't do things like test my story and check it out. And it's still there to this day. So it's there. They do the accounting. They offer the chest. They apparently decide to open the ark too. So now we get our Raiders of the Lost Ark moment. We didn't have it before with the ark, but now we do. Then, so the <laughs> happy day, everything's good. Here's the loot. And then verse 19. Then he struck the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Come on, Lord. You know, it's the Philistines get to handle this thing and, and mess with it, but the Israelites know better. They know what God's instructed of their life, and he's much harsher on the Israelites than on other people. There's a couple things with this verse, too, that in the translation, but we can know that God's tolerance of that is not long with the Israelites. They know better. This is tough because y'all know better too. Y'all have heard the gospel. You're accountable for it. And God holds you to a higher standard than the pygmies in Africa or South America. Where are the pygmies? I don't want to insult Africa. Um, pygmies are nice people too. I don't mean to insult the pygmies either. I should have just not used that example. That's all there is to it. So they know they shouldn't touch it. Numbers 4.15. After that, the sons of Koath shall come to bear it and they shall not touch any holy thing lest they die. That's the promise he made to the Levites. They should know better. These things are the burden of the sons of Koath in the tabernacle of the congregation. So then you get this number, 50,070. That's a really specific number, isn't it? Mm -hmm. There's a problem, I think, with my, I don't know how your translation reads, but mine's, um, in the Hebrew, it doesn't quite read that way. So... First of all, the town of Beth Shemesh at this period in history, according to archaeology, is about 1,500 people. So when it says 50,000, a lot of Israelites came out to see the ark. Like news had spread. And they, so they do the two cows at, initially, and then they just start to give offerings. And there's this, so time has to have passed here for people to spread the word and then come gather and celebrate that the ark is here. But they leave it on the stone because they're not supposed to touch it. So likely in the Hebrew, that was translated out of 50,000, 70 men of the people were killed, which makes sense because in verse 20, there's still people there. 70 is not an accidental number. And 70 is much more of an indicator. If you're going to open the ark, it would be the elders of Israel that do it. And we know the number 70 is the number of the elders of Israel. Um, 70 is the word sabim in the Hebrew. It's an amplified version of God's work on earth, the divine number of seven. So it's seven times ten, right? But the root number there is seven, and it's the number that was chosen to lead Israel. So with Moses, when he picked his leaders in the wilderness, Exodus 24, Numbers 11, 16, there were 70 elders. Uh, and there are 70 palms at Elam. There's 70 people in Jacob's family when they go down to Egypt. 
That number 70 has popped up a ton of times, and it has to do with the leadership of the nation of Israel again and again and again. Gideon's sons, there were 70 of them, Judges 8.30. Abdon's donkeys, uh, that's a side thing, Judges 12.15. It's kind of a joke if you want to look it up. Or that number could just be chance. Well, it's just chance, right? It's an incidental number. So if it's an incidental number, uh, then, the, then we see that this idea that the number of 70,000 isn't connected either in, the, in, the, in 2 Samuel 24. So we see these numbers keep going. <clears throat> so folks come out to see it. Around 50,000 people are there. Out of the 50,000, I would read that as 70 of them were killed, likely the entire priestly leadership core, which fits with the narrative of Samuel. We've had this contrast between Samuel and these corrupt priests that are running the country. Well, God just eliminated, if you read that that way, he just eliminated those corrupt priests. Who's left? Samuel. He's like the only guy left. There's still lots of Levites, but when it comes to the leadership core running the show, the most senior priest, just Samuel would have been 71st on the list, right? Junior member of the priestly leadership. He just got elevated to number one. And it had nothing to do with Samuel. He didn't go on a killing spree, right? So the men of Beth Shemesh, verse 20, there's apparently men left over because they, send, they at least are sending some messengers. Um, and then there's this great slaughter. So a great slaughter of these people. It's still not a joyful thing that 70 people got killed. But in the context of 1 Samuel, these are the people that were stealing from the Israelites, they were stealing food. They were having sex with the women that came down to pray at the tabernacle. These were evil people. And God just eliminates them really quick. Um, and they're opening up the ark, like total disrespect and disregard for God's law. Well, God just ends the priesthood. And now Samuel just gets promoted. All of Israel then sees this happen and they get a healthy respect for Yahweh, just like the Philistines got done figuring out. So we have a huge balance there. Um, the presumption of those priests was enough, and God had had enough. He had already been prepping Samuel, and now God's making his move. Verse 20, and the men of Beth Shemesh said, so clearly 50,070 didn't die because there's still men left to talk, right? The men of Beth Shemesh said, who is able to stand before this, whole, this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirish Jerem, saying the Philistines have brought back the Ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. We don't want it here anymore. Do you notice the Israelites are doing the exact same thing that the Philistines did? They don't act any different. You take it. Like, it's dangerous to be around the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 10, I didn't come to bring peace. Don't mistake that. I came to bring a sword. And if the sword's the word of God, the word of God divides the corrupt from the righteous. It's not a peaceful thing, human to human. If we are in sin, we are in conflict, and we choose to be there. The peace that we get that comes also from Jesus is when we become right with God. So we see that dividing line being drawn here. The question, who is able to stand? The answer to that question, if you don't get the rhetorical question there, is nobody. Nobody is as holy and righteous as God. Nobody stands against God. Learn that. And when they watch the 70 priests get killed, and I think it was 70, when they watch those priests get killed, that's their response. Wow, if those guys aren't good enough for God, who could possibly be good enough for God? And the answer is nobody, right? So at least regard the instructions he gave you because you're not worthy. So do what he said to do, 
right? So there's this holy God. We're doing two chapters tonight. Everybody good for another chapter? Because the story rolls on. So God invites his children to be holy, and to be holy, that starts with a fear. You've got to be afraid of God. And Israel's coming around to conversion here. So God's actually using this whole thing with the Philistines to bring them closer to him. That's the end result. Then the men of Kirachim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son. Why did they consecrate Eleazar? Because there's no leadership left. So they had to. So they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So we know that he was a Kohathite, and we know that he would have had to be one of those priests in that line, so they'd suddenly promote one of these younger priests to become in charge. They consecrate it. We know that word means to set something apart. And they put it in some guy's house. Like, this is not the tabernacle. Like, they're terrified of this thing. Think of the flippant tone they had when they come hauling it out to battle a few chapters ago. They're just thinking it's their toy. And at this point, God has, ex- has shown his power. And it's not that God's in the box. It's that, that God's valuing that box. Therefore, we should value the box. Kirith Jerem is the city of forests. Uh, we first saw that in Joshua. It's a border town. It sits right on the border between Judah and Benjamin, geographically. So it's, it's no one tribe has then a claim to this house. Um, but God doesn't need to be in Shiloh. He can bless whatever home he wants to bless. And this Abinadab, uh, the word Abinadab means noble father. Noble father, or a willing father. It has this idea that he's a, a father that's taken his job seriously. So he, that's where God puts his ark in the house of a willing, a willing steward. God's willing, and he finds a willing and a noble caretaker. The worship of God then is now split between Shiloh, where the tabernacle and the altar still sits, and we've got this little house of Abinadab where the ark sits. But God's moved his symbolic representation out of the Shiloh, exactly like we saw Samuel prophesy a few chapters ago. Like God has left the building. So the priesthood is getting kind of a, a turnaround. Eleazar, again, we know that one means God has helped in the Hebrew. So he gets, it gets to be a common name. You get heroes in your history, and now suddenly you've got lots of people named, even if it's a bad name, like George. You know, then there's George Washington, there were tons of Georges. So sometimes names become more famous, and Eleazar, we can see that becomes a common name. Uh, this is not the son of Aaron. A few generations have passed since then. So it was the ark remained in Kirithshim a long time, actually about 50 years. So it's just going to sit in the house of Abinadab for 50 years. It was there, um, or I'm sorry, 20 years. So in Kirithshim a long time, it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So 2 Samuel 6 says it stays there, which implies the book of Samuel was written about 20 years after this event. Because when you get to 2 Samuel chapter 6, the time span looks to be about 50 years that it's been their grand total in Kirith Jerem. David is going to eventually bring it from Kirith Jerem to the city of David, which is Jerusalem. And then the ark finds its way to Jerusalem, and that starts to fit into place. Um, the word lamented there is in verse 2. Lamenting indicates that there's a funeral or a mourning that happens. Something's broken in Israel. Because God's ark isn't in God's tabernacle. So we're living in a period where the priesthood just died. There's a mourning that happens across the nation. There's a regret 
for their sin as a nation. And this is a step towards repentance. This is actually healing that's happening in Israel, not the other way around. So they lament. Their armies are decimated by the Philistines. Their priesthood has been decimated by God. Maybe there's a better way to live life. Because we haven't made it in the worldly sense and we haven't made it in the spiritual sense. God, there has to be something better. And there's that feeling of lamenting that comes with that thought. Likely, Samuel got mocked for 20 years for being the only priest in the priesthood that was not corrupt. Likely, he heard a lot of abuse. Now, people are going to start turning to Samuel going, what do we got to do? There's got to be a better way. And Samuel, seems like you're the only guy in town that God's talking to. Charles Spurgeon says this. I love how he frames this. It may be very naturally asked, where was Samuel for this 20 years? I know not what he was doing during those 20 years, but I have a suspicion, I might say. I have a firm persuasion that he was going from place to place, preaching the God, preaching, I'm sorry, I lost my place, preaching in quiet spots wherever he could gather an audience, warning people of their sin and stirring them up to seek Jehovah, thus endeavoring to infuse some spirituality into their life. Remember in the last chapter, Samuel started a tour of three different cities and he would just travel around Israel preaching Jehovah and righteousness. So we see that that is what's going on during this time of Israel's lamenting. It's Samuel's work that helps the lamenting to happen. If you don't regret sin, you never turn away from it. You know, you just dig your sin and you love what you're doing. You don't walk away from that. So after the Lord, um, regrettably, this is, the Lord has put them, helped them to become this part of the spot. But we see the dual storyline of Samuel goes back and forth. We go from corruption to what's going on with Samuel. And that's what happens in verse 3. Then Samuel. So now we're flipping back to this other storyline, which is God raising Samuel up in the middle of a corrupt nation. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. How is this Samuel suddenly able to talk to all of Israel? Because 70 priests just died. The priesthood's gone. So now he's the guy that's left. So he speaks to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord with all your heart and you put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Those aren't just Samuel's words. He promised that back to Moses. He promised it to Joshua. Samuel's just repeating what his Bible says. And he's just bringing it, saying, reminding them of these promises. So the children of Israel put away all the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and they served their learning. They shut off the computer sites. They turned on. So Ashtaroths, well, I'll get to that in a sec. As the last judge of Israel, we see Samuel as the most successful. All the judges of Israel didn't really turn the hearts of Israel. What we see happening with Samuel right now is that the last judge, he's actually effectively turning their hearts back to God. Boy, I want to know how to do this, don't you? Don't, we live in a country where our hearts need to turn back to God. Lord, help us to learn how to do this. How do we turn hearts? You look at how he does this, we see the real oppression for the Israelites is that they're chasing after other gods. And it says he spoke to all the house, so him traveling around talking to people. For 20 years, this is kind of his message. And we, he's ready to give an answer to people that have the question. He says, if you return, that's the best basic message of God. If implies a choice. God gives us free will. If you choose to return to get right with God, then here's what you do. One, two, three. You put away, you prepare your heart, you serve the Lord. So what do you put away? So serving the Lord only means God's a jealous God. 
He doesn't want to compete with Ashtaroth poles. And you're like, ha, 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 I don't have an Ashtaroth pole in my house. I was just in a house today. I went down in this guy's shop, and littered through his shop are nude posters from every Playboy calendar he could find. Ashtaroth poles were representations of naked women. Ashtaroth worship was pornography and orgies. And then they would have babies that they didn't want, and they would give them to Moloch and kill them in the fire. Right? This is what the world does when given their own leash. Right? So to put away that stuff is to stop toying with it. Get it out of your life. To serve God only is less work than serving multiple gods. It's a lot harder to serve everything the world wants you to serve. It's so much easier to not care about the world and care about what God has for your life. So he's saying that. This isn't different from the New Testament. Matthew eleven thirty. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Just relax. Right? And this is what I like to say to legalists. Like, chill out. <laughs> right? It's not that hard to follow the Lord. It's joyful. He says to come with all your hearts. We've seen that again and again and again. This is what God has always asked. It's what he's asking here in Samuel. And then, and then he says to take action. So first change that heart, turn towards the Lord, and then he says take action. Put away the false idols. The Baals would have been images of power. So good job, career success, good harvests. If they wanted to do well at work, they would give offerings to the Baals. So they're all these gods of power. Um, they largely would take, think of the money and time you have to commit to fake stuff. Like you save a lot of money when you stop paying for things that the world just wants to pump into your head. It's one of those things. So the power, the weather, financial prosperity, they'd have these fire rituals. I won't get too much into Baal worship. Ashtaros, I've already talked about. Um, there's hundreds of Baals. So the Baal is not a god. It's a collection of gods that you just make up. And we already saw that in Judges where people are just making up their own shrines. So he says to put them away. The word in the Hebrew is sir. It means literally to turn something off or depart from it, to bring something to an end. To put it away is not to put it in a drawer so that you can pull it out later. To put it away is to get rid of it altogether and dump it. Well, I can't dump it. I don't want to get rid of it. Yeah, you can. Just throw it away and get rid of it and serve the Lord only. Don't miss that. They never rejected the Lord. They just didn't serve him as their only God, right? So the impl implication of is serve the Lord only is that they were serving the Lord in some sort of fake, lukewarm kind of way, but they were also serving all the other stuff, the Baals and the Ashtaroths. They were mixing what the world had with what God has. And the message of God is, stop doing that, please. It's a waste of your time and energy, and it divides your worship. Stop it. So they did this, they did everything else in addition to their God worship. So dump them and serve the Lord only. Verse 5, and Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered together at Mitzvah. They drew water, and they poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day, and, they, and said there, We have sinned against the Lord, and Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mitzvah. Mitzvah is where, oh, you know, so Mitzvah is a particular location. That's where Jacob split off from Laban in Genesis 31. It's where Jacob walked away from the world. And so this location is chosen, or maybe it's just by chance that they picked that location. Or it has every sort of symbolic representation that they would have known. Samuel says, I will pray for you. I think this is the role of a believer who's right with God. You got somebody who wants to turn and repent, like pray with them, intercede for them. And God 
honors that in the Bible, and he tells us to do it. Pray for those that persecute you. So we, this idea that Samuel is going to step in, he preaches, they repent, he prays for them. It says in verse 6, so they gathered. It's not just enough to abandon your idols in your home. You have to do that, and then you have to gather with God's people. And I emphasize this all the time. It's important that we gather. It's what God tells us to do. So they get rid of the idols, but that's not good enough. Then you're just going to wallow at home wishing you had your idols. You have to replace that with something and gathering with God's people, having poker nights and murder mystery nights and things that are of questionable import in the spiritual world, those are good for us. And they replace the other stuff the world wants us doing. But to gather with God's people is a big deal. And I'm breaking this down because this is a whole nation repenting. It says to draw water and pour it out. That's a symbolic act. We can try to purify ourselves, but it doesn't work. Just getting rid of all my heavy metal music when I was a teenager did not work. I just wanted my heavy metal music back. I had a great moment of holiness, and then I continued to pine after it. And, and then I found that the Christian heavy metal was horrible, and I tried to find better stuff. Thankfully, now there's Skillet, but that's another conversation. But in the end, you take all that stuff you try to gather and you just pour it out before the Lord. I can't beat the battle of sin on my own. I'm helpless. On my own, I'm just going to wallow at home and I'm going to be miserable. Well, that doesn't work. You have to gather with God's people. You have to take and gather that water and pour it out before the Lord. Give it to God. Let him deal with the problems. So there's this idea of pouring out our hearts to God. Lamentations 2.19, arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the watches, pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. This image in Samuel becomes part of the theology of the Old Testament. Come before the Lord, give him all your troubles, and just pour it out. He's a really big God. He can take your anger. He can take your sadness. Just yell at God if you need to. If you got anger, give it to God. He can take it. He's way bigger than us. And they fasted that day. Here's another action they take. They pour their hearts out before the Lord, and then they don't even have time to eat. Like, they're so busy doing this before the Lord, eating becomes irrelevant. The spiritual takes precedent. Fasting's also a symbolic act. So when we fast, we're showing that we can practice life without needs because they come second to God. So we can go without eating for a season because God comes before that. You guys all know fasting. Fasting, biblically, is always associated with mourning, grief, and woe and repentance. And in this case, it's associated with a repentance. So we have sinned. There's the confession. It's super simple. I've sinned. Please forgive me. But that's super hard for some people. Like, I know people are like, I've never sinned. I'm a good person. Really? Oh, yeah, we don't even have a place to get traction in this conversation. If you think you're that great, I'll talk to you in a year when you realize you're not. God always offers forgiveness when people offer repentance. And God promises to, if you come to me with your problems, I will forgive you of your sins. If you repent and recognize you're, you've been departed from me, then I'll draw you close to me. What an awesome God. Like that he just accepts forgiveness. I wish I was that easy. You get somebody that sins against you again and again and again, and then they keep coming back asking for forgiveness. Most humans would just say, okay, I've forgiven you enough. And then Jesus told his disciples, no, you forgive them 70 times seven. Because they're all like, how many times do we got to forgive people? Seven? God's number? No, 70 times 7. But maybe those numbers are just by chance. But they have this image that we just keep doing it. So they confess. God offers the forgiveness. 
they humble themselves and God lifts them up. 1 John 1, verse 8. If we say that we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I think most of us know our sins and we can confess them. A lot of us wallow in our sins. That's stupid. You're not supposed to do that because he forgives you of them and they're over. And God's like, go and sin no more and stop doing it. And thus, Samuel judged the children of Mitzpah. The word thus there should be part of that. Um, I don't know why, but the idea here is this is the manner with which Samuel judged. It's not that he sat there and said, I judge all of you. It's not that kind of judgmentalism, but he's acting as a judge as we saw in the book of Judges. He's the one that shares the word of God with the people and administers those situations that are questionable. So thus he judges the children of Israel at Mitzpah. So we end the era of the judges. This is the end of the book of Judges because he does this and Samuel becomes the last judge. There's no military outing that happens here. And we saw these judges got less and less effective until Samuel showed up. So God just relieved Israel from the Philistines, and he did it without a judge at all. Let me say that differently. The first judges led armies. The last judge led nobody. God did it all by himself. So at each phase, God does more and more and more as the humans get weaker and weaker and weaker. So if he can use humans, he does. But the pattern that we see in the Bible is when there's no righteous humans to use, he'll just do it on his own. His will will go forward because he's God. So the judge is to share what the Bible says, not to just be a judgy person. I don't like your genes. It's not like that. So this is how Samuel calls for revival. I think this is a really interesting passage. This is how a whole nation turns around. He calls them to repent. Uh, Matthew 4.17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the disciples in Mark 6.12, they went out and they preached that men should repent. Luke 13.3, I tell you no, but except you repent, you will perish likewise. Acts 3.19, repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins can be blotted out. When the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord, get the water and pour it out. It's super simple. Like, that's the amazing part. The Bible is so deep and thick and rich and complex, but it's also, like, super easy. If you want to be right with God, repent of your sin. You, that makes sense, right, Isaac? Yes, Isaac's with me on that. Verse 7, Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mitzpah and the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel, and when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. They're still scared of the bullies. That's real, isn't it? It's not clear why they're scared of the Philistines, but maybe they're just used to being dominated. Maybe it's like a habit. Maybe they resent the whole situation with the ark. Maybe they can't stand see, seeing people like Israel joyful and happy and humble and, and righteous. Uh, verse 4, the Israelites put away the false gods. Verse 6, they gathered together. Verse 6, they poured out water. Verse 6, they fasted and they repented. Verse 7, now God's people are just, they're not a threat when they live in sin. There's no problem with the, with the Israelites when they don't do these things. It's when they do these things, they become a problem and the Philistines rise back up to attack them. 
So it's interesting that when we humble ourselves before God, we become a threat to the spiritual enemies of this world. He doesn't like it when we do that. Matthew 10, Jesus teaches them, shows power, then he explains how the world's going to attack them. Like, read Matthew chapter 10. It's like a, a, a dutiful discourse. We did this, we were doing this this morning at our Sunday Bible study, Sunday morning Bible study. Like, Jesus gives them a one-chapter description of how to handle persecution because it's going to happen. They were afraid. Likewise, Israel immediately falls back into fear. They're still not doing their thing. Contrast this with chapter 4 uh, when they were boldly going out with their box. So being afraid of the Philistines is an upgrade from being presumptuous. Chapter 4, they're all marching out with their ark thinking they're awesome, and they all die. Here they're all terrified of what could happen to them, and they're not going to die. Do you see the contrast? It's the weak that God makes strong. It's the people that think they're strong that God's going to humble. He doesn't like arrogance. So it's better to be obedient to God and still have our fears than it is to be presumptuous of God and not to have fears. That said, fear is the enemy of faith. So there's another level of growth here where we want to see Israel actually have faith and joy in what God's about to do. So true faith is going to save them even if they have a little fear. A big lie doesn't save you even when you're filled with confidence. And it's a great piece of wisdom from the Bible. It has something to do with our feelings have nothing to do with our salvation. We can feel great and be set up for a huge spiritual disaster. Or we can be humbled before the Lord and God brings us a great spiritual victory. It has nothing to do with our feelings. So we don't live by feelings. Those things can be deceptive. And fear is a natural reaction to the Philistines, but they have no reason for it. So thankfully... The children of Israel, verse 8, said to Samuel, Don't cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he might save us from the hand of the Philistines. This is huge growth for Israel. Like This is a whole nation coming around to the right spot. Their request for Samuel to pray means they know where to send their concerns. The fear is not bad. It's the living in fear that's bad. It's okay to have fear, but you hand it to God, and God deals with it. And you move forward anyways. So even that little bit of faith, God's going to honor it. Because he'll take that little piece of mustard seed and he'll turn it into a mountain of a victory. And they're asking, Lord, we want you to save us because the threat is real. Like that's the reality of it all. The world's a scary place. It's out to get people. But they request it and they ask for it. And this is the right thing to do with fear. Verse 9, Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered them. This is the core. Verses 4 through 6, they follow Samuel towards God. Verse 7, the world makes a claim on Israel or wants to start oppressing. Verse 8, they know where their help comes from, and they look to the right place. And now, get this, a lamb of God is sacrificed. Not a bull, not a scapegoat, not a dove. They have other options for sacrifice. But Samuel chooses a lamb of God for the nation of Israel to save them from the enemy. That lamb of God, that innocent lamb that's done nothing wrong, it's not guilty of any sin, it's, it's supposed to be perfect and spotless according to Levitical law, it's going to take the death that Israel deserves. And we've already studied the idea of propitiatory sin. We've studied the concept of substitutionary sacrifices. So the lamb is being substituted as a propitiation for the sin of an entire country. And that poor little lamb, little fluffy, sorry, Paul, little fluffy is going to take the punishment 
that Israel deserves for their indiscretions. And there's no accidents here. It's not an accident that this is a lamb. Genesis 22.8, Abraham said, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two men went together. <laughs> it's not an accident. A whole burnt offering, the whole thing gets burnt up. Samuel knows that it's without atonement, there's no prayer to God. Unless we're right with God, we're not really talking to God. And only God can make them holy, and this is the system that God picked to make things holy. You need to have a substitutionary sacrifice or offering that goes up to God. John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Where did John get that thought from? This is how it works. Like the Old Testament instructs or gives us revelation into what's going on in the New Testament. If we want to follow God and we want to claim that that's the way we want to go, only God can save us. And the way that we get saved is we respect the fact that Jesus on the cross is the Lamb of God, sacrificed for our sins, set up since the beginning of time. It's how it works. Did it with Abraham, does it here with Samuel, and God answers them, boom. Literally, there's going to be a boom in verse 10. Israel's languished here for 400 years, and at this moment in time, God's doing a new thing. The era of the judges is over. The era of the prophets and the kings is about to begin. This is a new era in human history that's about to begin. So verse 10, now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. I still want this made into a movie. This would be a great movie. But then the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. The Lord thundering is likely a supernatural event. Like I'm thinking this isn't normal thunder. At least they don't treat it that way. The boom was actually a biblical boom. Loud voice there in the Hebrew is kol uh, and, and it implies that it is shouting. So there's something that happens that it says it confused them being the Philistines. It didn't confuse the Israelites. So it has an effect where it, the people that don't hear God's voice, they're confused by what this noise was. Well, maybe that was just chance. What the heck was that? But the people that are following God know exactly who it is, and they're not confused by it. it everything makes sense. So, you know, I, I, so sometimes in my notes, I got just these wandering thoughts, like questions. And I leave my questions in there, and sometimes I read them, and sometimes I don't. One question is, would they then hold synods discussing the theological relevance of the boom, the loud voice, the thunderclap that God speaks with? Or maybe in Christian magazines, they would write articles skeptically on the boom, that maybe it was a boom, maybe it wasn't a boom. Or maybe denominations would argue over what the boom was. You hear the confusion in that sort of thing? Um, Ball and Ashtaroth experts would get together on news shows and then explain in detail why that boom was simply a natural event. Right? So again, I got weird notes sometimes. Psychologists would just explain how this was mass hysteria. Right? This is just a mass, everyone saw the same thing and they're all just nuts together. And you think, well, and I'm not too far off the mark, but you see those things and, and maybe God just made a big noise. I mean, that's a theory. It's just what it says it is. And that as rational, intelligent human beings, when they recorded it in a historical record, they're trying to tell us God intervened at this moment. And the Philistines don't, don't know what to do with it. They're just in panic mode over here, running around like chicken little. What's going on? What's happening? And there's confusion in the world 
where with the people of God, there's clarity. And like, we get it. We're not worked up. We understand what's going on. So the confusion is upon the Philistines. They're confused by it. Israel's not. Verse 11. And the men of Israel went out of Mitzpah and they pursued the Philistines. Now the tide of battle has changed and they drove them back as far as Beth Car. We don't know where that is. It's the only mention of it in the Bible. So a long ways away to some place we've never heard of. Um, literally in the Hebrew, Beth Car, however, means the place of the lamb. But that's probably just by chance, right? That's just a coincidence that's going on there. So they pursue them, they drive them back. Verse 12. And then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. I love this. They used to name people Ebenezer, but they don't since the Christmas carol. Like, that's not a popular name anymore. But the Lord has, thus far the Lord has helped us, which implies that he's going to help us moving forward too. He's helped us up to this point. Why would we think he won't keep helping us? So there's a rock now between Watchtower and Toothcrag, which are those translations. Ebenezer there, the, thus far the Lord has helped us. Um, the literal translation of Ebenezer is stone of help um, and, or rock of salvation would be a way to translate that. Deuteronomy 32.15 would be your reference for that. Um, it, it's used by David. This is significant. This idea that God is a rock, this is the first time that pops up in the Bible. But we're going to, I mean, we're, you guys have read a lot of the Bible. You know this image pops up again and again and again. But just a few examples. Psalm 18.20, 18.2.46. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I'll trust, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock and let the God of my salvation be exalted. Like Joshua, they set up a memorial and they set up a marker. And this particular mar marker is the, 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 the rock of my salvation. And this is that image. So when we see that mentioned, there, some of them could literally be thinking of this memorial, of this moment where God made a loud noise, intervened, confused the bad guys, and ran them off. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Any memorial that we have, we should remember how God's helped us in the past and that he will continue to help us in the future. I take great hope in this. If God can stop the Roman persecution then he can help me at my job. If God can, like, seriously take the humble face, take humble servants of faith to overturn the Borgias papacy, then he can help us with corrupt religious figures today. Right? If God can start a new country out of English tyranny, the, one of the most oppressive tyrannies the world had seen, then he can, you know, help me reject being materialistic and getting rid of my pride. Like, I'm nothing compared to what God's already done. If God can remove slavery from the modern world, he can probably give me some amazing grace too. It's just how God works. And that those thoughts should give us hope. Um, so verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued. They did not come anymore into the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines, all the days of Samuel, like their life just sucked from here on out. And God just takes care of it. Um, then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. That's an interesting little add-on, isn't it? There is a situation in the Philistines. Apparently the Amorites heard about it too, and they're like, we don't want to mess with Israel. And there's this respect. When, God sees, when people see that God is with you, 
there's some of them that just back off and respect that. I'm not going to mess with a per person who's righteous. It's a bad idea to start with. So the other thing with the Philistines is at this point, the Philistines transition into kind of like the stormtroopers of the Bible. Like they seemingly are endless. They keep popping up and they never seem to die, right? And so the Philistines are just going to be this ongoing problem for them and their life just isn't blessed. Like some of the greatest humor out there are these things with stormtroopers and they're just kind of having chats while they're on duty. And life for stormtroopers is not good. You get stationed in Tatooine, that's a miserable place to be. So the Philistines become those kind of characters in the Bible. The Lord is against them. So now both the Philistines and Israel now get who God's for and who he's not. He's not for General Hophni of the priestly priestlies. The priestlies are gone. He's not for the Philistines. They got tumors on their butt. So then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. They actually gained territory without a real military campaign. So, and Israel still does this today, like in 1948, there's the Six-Day War, Seven-Day War. They get attacked by like 29 nations or something, and then they actually take territory. Like that's how God tends to work with Israelite battles. So the lesson of all history, don't attack Israel. Don't invade Russia in the winter, and don't attack Israel. Like these are just laws of history. So, and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. This is just how it's going to be while Israel, while Samuel's alive and under his leadership, the priesthood starts to be clean and decent and respecting of the people and there gets to be a, a new singular trust in the Lord God of Israel. And he went from year to year on a circuit. This is where I get the route. Sorry, I said it was in the last chapter. It's here. I get mixed up week to week. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzpah, and judged Israel in all these places. Isn't it cool how a man of God, they don't have to come to him like with Hophni and Phinehas. They all had to come to Shiloh, and then they got ripped off. Samuel goes to them. right? He doesn't say, look at how awesome I am. Come honor me at my throne or something weird like that. He's like going out and traveling around the country doing his work. I love Samuel. What a great guy. Right? There's no pride here. You would think that when there's peace in the land and Samuel's in charge and all the other priests are dead, you'd think he would take on the same level of pride that the previous priest does. He doesn't do it. He's been raised right. So he holds them accountable. He's walking around judging. We get a little glimpse of the integrity of Samuel that even when he has unchallenged authority, he still honors this route that he takes, doesn't change his work ethic. Doing this kind of travel in the ancient world would get harder from year to year to year to year. But the record is he did it all the days of his life, which means he's doing this as an old man, taking these trips. As an old man, as I get older, I'm like, ah, I'd rather just stay home. I don't want to go for a walk. I'm tired. But Samuel just has this work ethic where he keeps doing it. It's miraculous in that he does this, but that faithful service is something we can look at as believers and say, wow, he just did his job. He did what God called him to do. Um, Likely in verse 16 that he went out to them. Just a thought. It's likely that the nation of Israel is so scarred from those corrupt priests that he had to go out and bring the word of God to people. Because people just didn't want to go to, well, to be blunt, they don't want to go to church anymore. They're so sick of it. They're tired of the corruption and the rip-offs, the scams. So Samuel reinvents his role as a prophet and as a priest and as a uh, the last judge. And when God establishes a new era, we see a shift in the priesthood. We always do. And historically, when God creates a new religious system for his people, the priesthood and the role of the priesthood always shifts. Matthew 9, 16. 
No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Jesus is talking about the priesthood and responding to the Pharisees when he says that. The era of the Pharisee priesthood is over. And I'm doing a new thing, and he establishes a holy priesthood, which happens to be you and me. So he does something new. Verse 17, but he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. This is cool, because he grew up with Hannah making him little outfits. And now as an adult son, he goes back to her and visits every year. He's a good son. You know, thanks for the outfits, Mom. And, he was, and, he, and there he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. He didn't even make his home at Shiloh. He made it at Ramah. So Samuel's integrity is that he keeps taking care of his home even though he's the bigwig. Like, can you see President Biden going home every year to take care of his mom? Or can you see Trump doing that? I'm not trying to be political. But he's, a, he's the leader of Israel, and he goes home to hang out with his mom. I just think it's wonderful. He always returned. He's noted for his faithfulness and his consistency in that he does it root, he's routinized what he does. He goes to his home. I like that he goes home. And then there's this altar idea. And there he built an altar to the Lord. Built an altar to the Lord there because that's where God spoke to Hannah. So it's a legal spot to build an altar because God spoke there. Thus we record that what's going on in the first part in Samuel 1, and that starts to get documented and kept. So we end this section of Samuel. Uh, when we get to, in, in chapter 8, it said, now it came to pass. Um, and then we kind of have a wrap-up here at the end of this chapter. Um, and we'll, we'll see that as we, we move into the next section, these next verses kind of move us into the next section of Samuel. So we'll do those here real quick, and then we'll call it a night. Um, the Levites took down the Ark of the Lord, and the chest was with it. Oh, no, that's just an extra page. Forget that. We're done. Is verse 17 the end of this chapter? That's a super short chapter. No wonder we did two tonight. But he always returned home to Ramah, and he built an altar to the Lord. So when we get back next week, we'll pick up with the next section of Samuel. But that ends kind of the first narrative where you saw Samuel rising up and the corrupt priesthood getting destroyed. And now we got Samuel in charge, and the corrupt priesthood is gone. So God's moved. He's done it. And uh, I don't have any idea what these notes are about. Let's say a word of prayer. Dear Lord and King, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read this thousands of years later. Uh, we can see the consistency of your word and your character and the people you choose to elevate and the people you choose to judge. Lord, help us to humble ourselves before you, to never be so arrogant that we think we know everything. Lord, humble us in that we respond to your word instead of our own instincts and feelings. Lord, help us to not read your word flippantly. Lord, help us to know that when we open up the Bible, we open up your words to us and to take that seriously and to honor it and, and consecrate it and to call it holy because that's what it is. So Lord, help us to not come before you lightly at all, but to come before you and choose to rejoice. Lord, help our hearts to be filled. Lord, I pray for every soul in this room. Bless them. Lord, be with us and keep us. Lord, may we feel your presence this week as we go out. May we boldly confess and talk about our love for you. And may we do it, Lord, with just a heart full of joy. Bless the people here, Lord. I know we got lots of stuff 
in our lives, Lord, that look like Philistines. And there's troubles out there. But Lord, we know you can take care of them. You can change a heart. You can turn a soul. And you can do it on a dime. But Lord, we ask you to step in and do that. We got loved ones that are broken. Uh, we got folks that are far from you. And Lord, we just pray that they come close to you. Even if they got to get tumors on their butt. Um, Lord, we just pray that that drives them towards you and, and, and makes it close. Lord, we thank you for your work, the way in which you speak in such simple ways to get it through our thick skulls that it's about repenting and rejoicing. And Lord, help us to just do that this week, to repent and humble ourselves and take a new joy that you have a plan for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.